Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. All right, so this is week two in a message series from the world of baseball that we think you guys are going to enjoy, at least I hope you will. Uh, today we're going to be talking about temptation, integrity, and the Chicago Black Sox scandal of 1919. Now, I don't know about you guys, but in my, in my, research, uh, in, in my research for this message series, one of the things I rediscovered, I don't know if you guys are with me on this, I, I, lo- I don't just love the sport of baseball, I love baseball movies. And have you noticed how many amazing baseball movies there are? I'm not, I'm not sure why baseball in particular spawns good movies. Like, there's a couple of good football movies out there. There's a couple of good basketball movies out there, I think. But baseball, like, there's just some amazing baseball movies. And my favorite is this one right here, The Sandlot. Any Sandlot fans out there? Yeah, come on. And if you've never seen The Sandlot, let, let me just say on behalf of all of us, you're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls. Love The Sandlot. But my second favorite baseball movie is... You you could be done talking now. It'd be all right. Okay. Um, My second favorite baseball movie is Field of Dreams. Any Field of Dreams fans out there? Yeah, come on. Field of Dreams, just an amazing movie. Uh, The the fictional account of an Iowa farmer named Ray Kinsella who inexplicably plows his cornfield to build a baseball field, and these mythical figures from baseball's past come out of the cornfields. One of them, the, the primary character of whom is, is a baseball player named Shoeless Joe Jackson. We have a photo of Shoeless Joe. So Shoeless Joe Jackson was a real ball player, uh, played for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, I'm sorry, the Chicago White Sox. And, and Jackson, you may wonder how he got his nickname. Uh, and actually, it's, it's very simple. He was... Uh, in the minor leagues, and he was breaking in a new pair of cleats, and they were giving him blisters and really hurting and preventing him from playing his game at, at, at the optimal level, and he decided late in the game to kick him off, and he actually took an at-bat in his socks and hit a triple. And as he was sliding into third, somebody in the stands yelled, Jackson, you shoeless! Fill in the blank with a word you can't say in church, and so a nickname was born, and it followed him for the rest of his life. So Field of Dreams is the story of Ray Kinsella. These, these mythical players come out of the, the cornfields, and, uh, you know, and, and now Ray has, has a quandary. He's, he's going bankrupt because you know, he's not making any money on an empty ball field, and he can't harvest any corn because of the acreage that he plowed under to build a field. And he enlists the help of an author named Terrence Mann, who is played by James Earl Jones. And eventually, the, our, our, our uh, protagonist in the story, Ray Kinsella, is, is facing bankruptcy. He's going to lose his farm. And, and Terrence Mann, James Earl Jones' character, is initially a complete skeptic, but eventually comes to believe. He senses the magic of the place, and he delivers these words to Ray that, that like, sort of ring so true. He says, Ray, people will come. People will come, Ray. They'll, they'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't possibly fathom. They'll turn into your driveway without even really knowing why they're there. They'll arrive on your front porch as innocent as children, longing for their past. Of course we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. And they'll hand over the money without even thinking about it, because it's money they have and peace they lack. And they'll go to the bleachers and sit in their shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon, and find that they have reserved seats along one of the baselines where they cheered for their heroes as children. 
and they'll watch the game, and it will be as if they dip themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick, they'll have to brush them away from their faces. People will come, Ray. Through all the years, Ray, the constant has been baseball. America has rolled on like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a chalkboard, rebuilt and erased again, but baseball has marked the time. This game is a part of our history. It's a reminder of all that once was good and could be good again. But things were not always good in the world of baseball. In 1919 came the Chicago Black Sox scandal, and if you've never heard of that, here's what happened. In the year 1919, eight members of the Chicago White Sox conspired to throw the World Series for money. This is history. This actually happened. Many believe the Black Sox scandal began with this man, Charles Comiskey. He was the then owner of the Chicago White Sox, and he was a notorious cheapskate. Throughout the league, industry standard for players on their travel days was a $4 per diem. A per diem is what you, play a pair, uh, you pay a player for their meals and incidentals. Not Comiskey. For his players, it was $2.50 or $3. I mean, in 1919, you could live on $4 a day, but it was almost an insult what he did to these guys. And every time, to, to add insult to injury, every time the press gathered, Comiskey would set out a lavish spread with carving stations and the best of everything so that the re reporters would be kind to him. And the players understood this. They knew they got scraps while he treated the press really, really well. The players were told in, in, in the 1919 season that if they could make it to the playoffs, they'd get a bonus. They made it to the playoffs, and their bonus was a case of champagne in the locker room after the game. Normally, players made between ten and $12,000 in 1919. That was an average salary for a Major League Baseball player, a princely sum back then. Not the players on the White Sox. They made between six, th between three and six thousand dollars mostly. The Chicago Black Sox did not get that nickname. The White Sox did not become the Black Sox because of the 1919 World Series scandal. They picked up that nickname earlier because Charles Comiskey was so cheap he cut their laundry budget, so that the players had to often take the field in dirty uniforms. It was embarrassing. And the man that felt the sting most of all, perhaps, was their starting pitcher, Eddie Seacott. Eddie Seacott was told he would get a $10,000 one-time, $10,000 bonus if he could win 30 games in the regular season. Not an easy feat back then. But as he closed in on the number, after he won his 29th game, Comiskey had him benched, saying it was for the good of the team and he had to rest his arm. So insult to injury, insult to injury, and you've got some very, very frustrated players on the Chicago White Sox in 1919. Now some of you may be wondering, well, why didn't they just leave? Why didn't they just go? Go play for another team. Call their agent, ask to get traded. Why didn't they just quit and go play for another ball club? They couldn't because of something that existed in every major league ball contract in 1919, something called the reserve clause. The reserve clause stated 
that if you wanted to play for another ball team, you needed permission from the ownership of your current club. So you could quit your job in baseball and go do something else for a living, but you couldn't quit your job for one team and just go work for another. It simply didn't work that way. In other words, these players were trapped. So, when gambling legend and organized crime kingpin Arnold Rothstein sent representatives to tell these guys that they could pocket 10 grand a piece by throwing the World Series, the temptation was too good to pass up. It's too much to handle. Temptation comes to each of us in different ways, right? And as I was growing up, I always felt like the church did a really poor job of framing how temptation works. When I was growing up, it, it always seemed to me that, that what I was told about temptation in church was you just have to resist temptation because it's evil. What you're being tempted with is evil, and it's good versus evil. You guys remember the Tom and Jerry cartoons when you were little? Anybody watch Tom? I'm going to date myself here. Tom and Jerry cartoons. Anytime Tom was tempted to do something bad, like an angel would appear on one shoulder and a devil would appear on the other shoulder. You remember, anybody remember this? You know, and the angel was always like, don't do it, Tom, do the right thing, you know. And the, angel, and the, de the demon was always like, ah, come on, just got, you know, like he always had a Brooklyn accent for some reason, I can't figure out why. You know, come on. And, and it was like he had this choice between good and evil, and that stuck with me in my, my little impressionable mind as I was a kid. And it sort of stuck with me through my life, and I think, I think the church reinforced that, that, that temptation, when temptation comes your way, it's a choice between good and evil, it's right and wrong, it's God and the devil, and you have to choose right and resist. And, and, and honestly, that doesn't really work. Can we be honest? It doesn't really work. So... I think it might be helpful for us to reframe the nature of temptation and understand what's really going on. When you are tempted, whatever shape it takes, and temptation will take a different form for each of us, whatever shape it takes, what you are being given a dichotomy between, what you are seeing the choice between, is not the choice between good and evil, or God and the devil, or right and wrong. What you are being tempted with, what you are faced with, is a choice between what you want most and what you want now. It's what you want most or what you want now. If you're tempted to cheat on your spouse, what you want most is a thriving, passionate, loving marriage. But what you want now is her. If you're tempted to cheat on your spouse, what you want most is a loving, thriving, passionate marriage. But what you want now is him. And so you trade away what you want most to have what you want now. If you're tempted to cheat on your spouse, if you're tempted to cheat on your taxes, if you're tempted, tempted to fudge the numbers on your timesheet, if you're tempted to eat something you shouldn't eat or drink something you shouldn't drink or take something you shouldn't take or watch something you shouldn't watch or say something you shouldn't say or do something you shouldn't do, however it operates, what you are facing is not good and evil. It's what you want most versus what you want now. Let me illustrate from my own life. What I want most is to be thin and athletic. But what I want now is a cookie. Everybody with me? 
That's what you're facing. So, and the only thing I've ever found helpful in my life, when, when temptation occurs in whatever form it takes for you, the only thing I've found helpful is to look at it and go, okay, I do want that now. I would like to have that now, but I'm not going to settle for that inferior pleasure because if I take that, I'm going to trade away what I want most. And I don't want to trade away what I want most because most of the time, what I want most is actually God's best for me. What I want most is, 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 is what the Lord wants for me and what God has for me because that is going to be the most satisfied, filled up, happy version of me. You may have noticed this in your life, but a lot of times when you reach for what you want now, it's never as good as you thought it was going to be. You regret that decision early and often. But when you hold off, when you exercise a little impulse control, and this helps with impulse control to say, I, I have an impulse and I want to reach for that now, but what I'm going to do is hold off on what I want now so that I can have what I want most. We are not the first people to struggle with this. So what we're going to do now is we're going to dial back into Scripture. We're going we're to go back in time and travel back to the world of King David and talk about his, his first encounter with a woman named Bathsheba. This is the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and lay siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest... David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to go get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Okay, the Bible. Yeah, that happened. That's a thing. So David, you could argue, we could get into it. Scholars argue David should have been out in the field. He should have been at war. He should have been out uh, in battle with his soldiers and was shirking his duties by staying behind. However you want to play that, you can insert whatever super narrative you want to impose over that. However it works, he wasn't out there. He was home, and uh, as was apparently his habit, he was taking an afternoon nap. Because it's good to be the king. So he's resting. And after his midday nap, he gets up, and he walks out onto the roof of the palace, and he has a good stretch, and he sort of wanders over to the edge of the palace, and it says he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath right in his sight line. And he doesn't do what a king should do. He doesn't do what a man of God should do. He doesn't do what a gentleman would do. He doesn't go, whoa, okay, thank you very much. That's not for me. I think I'm going to go look on the other side of the palace. He doesn't do that. No, he stays. He takes a long look at her. And he decides to forget what he wants most. And he decides that what he wants now is her. Figures maybe the rules don't apply to him because he's king. So he calls a servant over. He says, hey, come here. Yeah, 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 come, come over. Get over. Come here. Puts his arm around the guy that looks down and says, hey, 
Who's that woman down there? And now the servant, check, check this. People don't talk about this. The servant is put in a really awkward position. The servant now is like, okay, yes, King, you want me to look, look at, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, you want me to look at her? I'm allowed to look at her? You want, you say, yes, tell, look at her, tell me, okay. Yeah, okay, I know who that is. That's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and if I, I'm sorry, like maybe to potentially deliver the bad news, but she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite who is a well-known soldier in King David's army. He says, oh, okay, great, perfect, send for her. And she comes to the palace, and she sleeps, he sleeps with her. And this is absolutely a gross abuse of his power. This is exactly the kind of thing that's been getting politicians in trouble for years and continues to do so today. David is not just anybody, he's the king. And he absolutely used that as leverage, no question. So he sleeps with this woman who isn't his, who, who is somebody else's wife, and he sends her home, and he trades away what he wants most. What does David want most? If you read the scriptures, it's not ambiguous. It's not unclear. He wrote like some of the most beautiful and godly poetry you've ever read. He, he wrote a good chunk of the Old Testament. I mean, David was God's man. Every person you've ever met whose name is David was named after this David. He's that David. He's, he's a man after God's own heart. He wants to honor God. He wants to, he wants to honor God with his life and leave behind a legacy. But what he wants now is her. And he takes what he can't have and she ends up pregnant. And now there's a scandal cooking. Now we're in trouble. So David has to think fast. Now David is trying to control outcomes. Now David is trying to dodge reality. So what he says is, I know, I know, I know. We're going to hatch a plan. We're going to fix this. Don't you worry. We're going to dodge a train on this one. We're going to bring Uriah home from the battlefield. Come, you, get over here. Get me Uriah. Tell Joab to send him home now. Now, like I want him on a horse tonight. Bring him home. Because he figures, if I can get Uriah to come home for a night, in two months when Bathsheba, Bathsheba starts to show, people will go, oh, yeah, that's right, Uriah came home for a night two months ago. Yeah, that's right, that's right. That, so, so, so David will dodge the bullet, is, is his plan. So he's like, I don't know, make something up. Tell him I need to talk to him. Tell him I need an update on the war or something. Just get him back here. Very next verse, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night on the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Okay, so David calls for the husband of the wife. He's just impregnated. And he brings him in and says, So, how are things? How's the war going? How's Joab? How are you guys making out out there? Everything cool? Everything good? Okay, perfect. Great. To which Uriah's like, uh, What am I doing here? Okay, perfect. That's great. Thank Thanks for the update, buddy. I really appreciate that. Man, you're just doing such a good job. You're such a good soldier. Thank you so much. What I want you to do now, you've been working so hard. I want you to go home to your wife, take a nice night, and relax. And it says he sent him home with a gift. What do you suppose the gift was? I think it was a bottle of champagne, a box of chocolate-covered strawberries, and a Barry White CD. 
I think that's what he gave him. Go home, have a great night with your wife, buddy. Have a wonderful night. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow. And Uriah leaves and David goes, oh, man, I sure am slick. I found a way to have what I want most and what I want now. So he's pretty horrified when he wakes up the next morning, looks out over the edge of the palace and sees Uriah with the palace guard sleeping on the porch because he was such a man of integrity. He said, how could I go home and enjoy the comforts of my own bed when my men are in battle sleeping in the field? I would never dishonor them that way. And he's so loyal to the king that he joins the palace guard and sleeps on the porch with the palace guard. To which David says, oh, Uriah, what have you done, you idiot? Now there's only one way out. I must take Bathsheba for my own to avoid the conflict, to avoid the scandal. And for that to happen, Uriah has to die. So David puts the pen to the paper and he writes instructions to Joab and says, put this man at the front of the battle and then withdraw your troops so that he will be killed. He writes that, he signs it, he seals it with his own signet ring, hands it to Uriah, and says, bring this to your commanding officer. So Uriah unwittingly delivers his own death sentence to his commanding officer. Uriah is killed, and David takes Bathsheba for himself. He traded away what he wanted most for what he wanted right now. The eight players on the Chicago White Sox embroiled in this scandal. What did they want most, do you think? Did they want to be rich? Um, maybe, but they weren't going to get rich off ten grand. I mean, $10,000 was a lot of money in 1919, but it wasn't enough to retire and live on. It wasn't that much money. Did they want to be famous? Did they want to be known throughout the world for their amazing baseball ability? Maybe that's, what they, maybe that's what they dreamed of, but none of them had that kind of talent. Maybe one, but what they wanted most, these men, was to keep on playing the game that they loved. So even after their confessions, they were acquitted in trial, but were then banned from the game by the new commissioner of baseball, elected to squash corruption throughout the league because now everybody, every time somebody missed a ball, people thought the play was fixed. Everybody thought all of baseball was fixed. Ticket sales slumped throughout the league. The new commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, decided we've got to fix this, and he decided to make an example of the eight players involved in the scandal, and he banned them from baseball for life. Seven of them deserved it. One did not. The one who didn't deserve it? Shoeless Joe Jackson. The statistics show that he played better in the World Series than he ever played during the regular season. He never shanked a play. He never tanked a fly ball. He hit better than he ever hit. They looked at the footage. He made no mistakes. He made no errors. And seven of the eight men testified that Joe Jackson was not in the room 
when they decided to throw the game. It was just inconceivable to anyone. He was such a big part of the team. It was inconceivable to anyone that they could do this without him. So rumors spread that he had taken money and that was the end of it. He was banned from baseball for life. Now these other guys, they faded into the past and found other work. That wasn't so easy for Joe Jackson because shoeless Joe Jackson was illiterate. He couldn't read. His wife signed all of his paperwork for him. So he couldn't just find other work. So what did he do? He changed his name. And he played minor league baseball on small teams throughout the South and throughout the West and faded back into history like a ghost walking into a cornfield. The collateral damage of a bunch of people close to him who could not distinguish between what they wanted most and what they wanted now. Don't let that be you. And with that, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for an opportunity to learn from history and to learn from your word, Father. We always frame it poorly, Lord. We always frame it right and wrong, good and evil. Will you teach us to reframe temptation in our mind and see it as a decision between an inferior pleasure and a superior pleasure and give us wisdom enough and impulse control enough and vision enough to see that what we want most is usually your best for us. Put language in our heads that teaches us not to settle for the inferior pleasure, but to hold out for what you want to deliver into our lives, because then and only then are we going to discover the most filled up, fulfilled, and satisfied version of ourselves. That's the man or woman we want to be, Father. That's the person we believe you've made us to be. Help us in this struggle as we face temptation daily. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give. Or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word truenorth to 77977 on your cell phone and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.